This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And today we are going to learn everything we need to know about the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act. And my guest is Stephen Birnbaum from the law offices of Stephen Birnbaum. Steve is an alum of the VISTA program. He graduated from the Public Interest Law School, New College of California, located in San Francisco in 1978, and was admitted to practice in the state of California that same year. He previously served as a staff attorney with legal assistance to the elderly, and then went into private practice. Uh, His practice is both in the state workers' comp and the federal longshore and harbor worker areas. He has been certified as a specialist by the California State Bar in both workers' comp maritime, and admiralty law. He helped create and is past president of Willig. That's the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group and was co-founder of the Longshore Section. Steve is fortunate enough to have offices in beautiful San Rafael, California, where he is coming to us today, as well as Honolulu, Hawaii. Steve, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be here. Steve, you know, we've never done a show on the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act. It is a federal statute, uh, but administered by private insurers or self-insured employers. Tell us uh, a little bit about the history of the Longshore Act and primarily who is covered and where they are covered. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think the history involves the word remedial. Uh, What I mean by that is that Congress saw what was happening along the bright line of uh, this distinction between the sea and the land. Uh, there were workers that were caught in between. Uh, if they were working on a ship uh, in the harbor and they were on water, the, some of the states decided that we don't have jurisdiction. So they were sort of either left with no remedy or they were left to sue and tort. And of course, uh, that remedy is not one well-liked by employers. So uh, the powers that be in the Congress in the uh, 1920s decided that they should have a remedial act, and they came up with the Longshore and Harbor Workers Act, covering those workers initially uh, uh, on the waterfront, um, definitely longshoremen, uh, shipyard workers, uh, anybody that works on piers that, uh, where they're in navigable waters, we call it, that is open waters that are connected to the, uh, uh, to the open sea. Uh, and then as time went on, uh, the Congress felt as though they had to add what, what they call extensions to the act uh, to cover workers that didn't fall likely into any state workers' compensation uh, uh, scheme. And so... Some of the other uh, extensions to the Act are uh, the uh, Non-Appropriated Fund Instrumentalities Act, the long title for covering civilians that work on military bases, 
uh, in U.S. military bases. Uh, who were, in the continental United States? Uh, not only in the continental United States. Um, I've represented uh, workers from outside the United States, military bases all over the world. If you're a civilian worker and you are being paid under what's called the non-appropriated funds, which is, there's two different kinds, I won't get into that, but it's a, it's a select group of workers mainly working at PXs, uh, naval exchanges, officers' club, uh, and uh, various recreational facilities on base. Uh, large numbers of people are covered, but compared to the uh, uh, number of people that are, that are appropriated or, or paid directly by the Department of Defense, it's fairly small in comparison. Uh, are, these, also, are, these, are these federal employees as opposed to private um, 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 employers that might contract with the government? Neither. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the hard part about spotting it. They are not federal employees, or they would be covered under the Federal Employees Compensation Act, an act completely different from uh, the, uh, the Longshore Act. And they are not private employees, although we're seeing more and more private contractors come on to military bases. These are people that are employed by entities, non-appropriated entities on the base. In other words, they make their own money. There are McDonald's on the bases. There, there are various restaurants. Uh, but mostly uh, you'll find that people that work in the, uh, in the warehouses, uh, civilians, uh, people that work at the Navy exchanges, the uh, PXs, the officers club, they're a special group. And uh, they're neither private nor are they Department of Defense. Um, okay, so if they, if, they, if, if they have the misfortune of getting an on-the-job injury, they come under this, this branch of, under the Longshore and Harbor Workers Act, this that extension? Is, that is correct. And uh, it, it's unfortunate, but many of these people are, uh, uh, are very unsophisticated. A lot of them have served uh, in, in the various services, and they... Uh, they take uh, after they get out. They take base uh, base jobs, and uh, the employer usually has a pretty compliant and unsophisticated worker. And there aren't a lot of lawyers around the country that are taking these cases because a lot of them involve uh, bases that are uh, uh, inland, far away from any port where a longshore lawyer usually resides, and the state workers comp. Lawyers in the uh, inland have no idea what uh, this act is all about. So many times, uh, these people will go unrepresented. All right. Um, what other extensions have occurred since 1927, which I believe was the date, uh, the year that the Longshore Act was uh, established? Yeah. Uh, well, there was also a, uh, a question about what do you do with people that work on oil rigs uh, on the continental shelf? Uh, you know, off of Texas, Louisiana, off of uh, uh, California even. Uh, and so the Congress created the Outer, Outer Continental Shelf Act, which is an extension, which basically goes by the same rules that Longshore go by. Uh, another extension to the act is, uh, which has become extremely um, a focus of the news in the last few years, is the Fence Base Act. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, because you're right, uh, where we are engaged now um, in the Middle East, that is uh, a source of a, a great deal of risk and uh, actuality of injury. So t tell us uh, about the Defense Base Act and who's covered there. Yeah, well, there was a question again uh, 
we go back to the term remedial, uh, there was a question about when you send a civilian overseas to work uh, in a military setting and a contract with the U.S. government or one of its allies, what is that person, how, how does that person get compensated if they get hurt? And uh, some tried to use the state act where they were employed, but that didn't work very well. So Congress again extended the Longshore Act and created the Defense Base Act for, for contractors, uh, civilian contractors with the military uh, that are uh, outside the continental United States and are performing uh, under contracts with either the U.S. military or its allies. Um, this has come into prominence, well, starting in Vietnam, I guess. Uh, I wasn't actually practicing law during that time, so I'm not exactly sure how it was, uh, uh, how how uh, rigorously it was it was being used. But since I've started to practice, we've had a few wars. We've had uh, the first Iraq War, the second Iraq War. We have the uh, what's going on in, in Afghanistan, and the use and and what really has primed the pump uh, has been the the rise in the use of private contractors instead of using the military to perform all kinds of tasks that only the military performed in the past, like security, like uh, logistics, uh, and the such. So uh, the Defense Base Act, well, I think that the figure has been something around 188,000 uh, private contractors uh, that have been working during the, uh, the two uh, most recent wars. And each one of those are entitled to benefits under the Defense Base Act. So the government has been wrestling with this for a while. And uh, the cases have uh, exponentially uh, uh, increased. And so there are, uh, the, the pressure on the system has been incredible. Uh, the, the Congress has been in trying to figure out how to handle it. And uh, right now, it's, 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 a, it's a quagmire because, especially with the sequestration, uh, we've been losing judges, we've been losing support staff uh, in uh, the Department of Labor that, who administers both the Longshore Act and, ext and its extensions. And people have been waiting for a long time for trials and even longer for uh, decisions from judges if it has to go to trial. Which raises a question in terms of um, where are these claims brought? They're covered under the Longshore Act. Uh, so somebody who's injured in a military installation, let's say in Iraq, and comes home and uh, has a claim, where, where does that uh, person bring the claim? Is it where they were deployed, where they live? Um, well, there's two choke points, I guess you could say, uh, for uh, filing the claims or where the claims are, are actually administered. Uh, in the uh, uh, in the Middle East, all the claims were going through the uh, New York office of the uh, workers' compensation, the office of workers' compensation programs under the Department of Labor. Uh, that has been somewhat diffused, and cases have been transferred. Uh, uh, those cases, and there are still cases coming from the Pacific region as well, uh, are handled through San Francisco, but. Um, uh, as time has gone on and more cases have been filed and logistics have, have changed, uh, you'll find that a lot of cases are filed 
closest to where the uh, uh, the uh, civilian uh, has returned to live. Uh, a question of what uh, uh, what appeals court in the end would be handling it is an interesting question that has been litigated a lot lately. Uh, and under the DBA, uh, that usually occurs at the site that the original claim was being handled. But that's getting a little too technical for this conversation. Um, now, all right, so how, I guess there's one other area, since you do have some expertise in maritime law. Uh, I know a lot of times the lines get blurred between somebody working on or near the navigable waters, loading, unloading um, uh, uh, boats, repairing boats, etc., as opposed to commercial fishermen or members of the crew, which are covered under the Jones Act. So uh, perhaps if you could distinguish and differentiate between uh, what the Jones Act is and how it differs from uh, longshore and harbor worker compensation. Sure. Um I'm not a Jones Act expert, so uh, I, I will give you a general idea of the distinction. Uh, the Jones Act uh, is uh, primarily a, a tort action uh, where uh, the involved party is a seaman, a crew member, attached to a, uh, a vessel in navigable waters doing the, the, the job of what seamen do, what crew members do, out at sea. Uh, the longshore worker, while working on, on uh, ships that reside in the water, uh, are not performing the job of a crew. Uh, longshore workers are generally either loading or unloading the ships, uh, they're re- refitting the ships, uh, they are building ships, they are building piers. They are connected to the land. The uh, crew member is connected to the boat in navigation. Now, um, there's a crossover point, however, sometimes where a crew uh, is connected with a boat that they normally ship out in, but they're, uh, they're dockside for a while. And they can be considered under the Longshore Act uh, if they are primarily uh, dockside, and they are servicing the ship uh, while it is in port. Uh, and this is, not, I'm not just talking about incidental duties, I'm talking about that their primary primary job is doing the uh, servicing of the ship, the refitting of the ship, uh, the loading of the ship, that kind of thing. That's their primary job. So, you know, it, it, the lines can get blurry, but there have been... There have been lots of cases litigated on this issue, and, and but I think generally speaking, the lines that I describe are, are are true. And if you really want to talk about blurring jurisdictions and adding additional complications to the mix, we're talking about the blurred line between a crew person on a ship as opposed to somebody that's uh, uh, servicing the boat when it's um, it, at uh, on land or tied up. Uh, what about the concurrent jurisdiction between the state workers' compact? And uh, we'll talk about the Sunship versus Pennsylvania case, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case in 1980, which uh, I'll let you describe the general principle of uh, Sunship. Yeah, well, Sunship is the, is the case that uses the term remedial. Uh, I don't know if 
it's originally used in that sense uh, in that case, but it is prominently featured as a reason why the Longshore Act was uh, was enacted by Congress. Uh, Sunship uh, grants concurrent jurisdiction to the states uh, if they wish it. Uh, in other words, uh, they, there may be uh, uh, many times when a longshoreman is not only covered by the Longshore Act, but is also covered by the State Act. And that depends on the states. Uh, there are, I believe, seven or nine states at this point uh, which, where concurrent jurisdiction can be afforded to the worker. And Sunship basically said that we recognize concurrent jurisdiction. The State Act always was the primary uh, vehicle for uh, workers' compensation. But in those cases where the distinction between uh, the land-based activity and the ship-based activity or the water-based activity was a reason for confusion uh, and a reason for denying benefits, then liberally construing the plight of the injured worker, we uh, the Congress enacted the Longshore Act and gave it gave the worker a remedy in case the state refused jurisdiction. You know what? This is a good this is a good point to take a short break, and we will come back. We'll talk a little bit more about concurrent jurisdiction, and then get into the type of benefits available to claimants who are injured under the Longshore and Harbor Workers Act or the Defense Base Act. So uh, we'll be back in a, a minute and uh, continue our conversation with Attorney Steve Birnbaum. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just send us an email at advertising at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce, and I am with Steve Birnbaum of California and Hawaii talking about claims under the Longshore and Harbor Workers Act. Um, Steve, when we before we broke for uh, a, a short time, we were talking about the concurrent jurisdiction under the uh, Supreme U.S. Supreme Court case of Sunship, uh, in which right now seven or nine states in the United States will still uh, allow for a choice between bringing a claim in the state under the state workers compact and under the federal um, moving away from that a bit uh, somebody gets hurt at work along it's a case under the longshore and harbor jurisdiction what is the process uh, a claim filed with uh, an insurance company uh, claim dealing with the claims department how does that work is it much different than a, the typical state workers comp case I wouldn't say it's 
much different, except that you know you're you're, you're dealing with uh, the federal government in the longshore uh, venue, and of course you're dealing with the particular states when you're in state workers' compensation. But uh, but primarily, what you're doing is I, I mean I think I'm, some states are, are much more liberal in terms of uh, filing deadlines. Uh, uh, technically speaking, however, I, I have I, I have yet in my years of practice had a case that was defeated on statute of limitations issues uh, because uh, there are many many exceptions to the statute of limitations. But uh, generally speaking, uh, if uh, a claim uh, is uh, if a, a worker is hurt, uh, they should be reporting that that uh, injury. To their employer and their, their employer fills out a form and that form is automatically sent to the Department of Labor. Interestingly enough, if uh, the employer fails to file that form with the Department of Labor, the statute of limitations is told and you will never have a statute of limitations. And in fact, I've had cases like that where 20 years after the injury, uh, the claimant comes to me and the first thing I ask is, well, have you gotten any any letters or anything from the U.S. Department of Labor? And when the, if they say no, it usually means that the employer forgot to file or just didn't want to file uh, the report of injury. So that that report of injury is 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 key in some cases. Once the report is is filed, that doesn't mean that the claim is uh, is safe for the employee. The employee still has to, in some way, get the word to the U.S. Department of Labor, usually to the district office, which I believe has at least 18 around the country. Uh, but some word has to get to them uh, to to uh, pr- uh, preserve the statute. Um, a filing of a formal claim should be made, but even if a formal claim is not made, even a phone call to the to the district office that usually is recorded is enough to preserve the claim. Uh, the courts have been very liberal in that interpretation. And that's at the federal Department of Labor level. But uh, who uh, generally is paying these claims? Is it uh, the employer through a self-insured program or uh, the purchase of private insurance? Both. Uh, you have... So uh, the, on, unlike the federal... Employees like postal workers or other employees of the federal government with the benefits are actually paid by the federal government under the Office of Workers' Comp programs administered by the Department of Labor. Here we have the Department of Labor overseeing the administrative and judicial portion of it, but the actual benefits are within private industry? Yes. Uh, yeah, there's, in fact, that's one of the ways to distinguish uh, on what I spoke about earlier, the non-appropriated cases from uh, from the Department of Defense cases, is that you you will see if someone comes to you that the claim is being um, insured, so to speak, by the federal government. And these FICA cases, uh, there won't be a private entity, uh, there won't be a private insurance company involved. Everything will be going through the U.S. government and the FICA department. And FICA is the Federal Employees Compensation Act, which basically covers just about all employees of the federal government. That is correct. 
and and so and but in, in under Longshore and its extensions, you will find uh, numerous insurance companies, uh, and there'll be self-insured TPAs. So uh, TPAs are third-party administrators, private claims companies that might administer correct. the benefits for an employer that pays the claims out of its own pocket. That is indeed true. Yes. Okay, so let's talk just briefly because we've just got a few minutes left. Uh, the benefit levels, uh, the types of benefits available to claimants who are injured either on a defense base or uh, on or about uh, a pier or a dock. Yeah, you know, I've, I like to tout the Longshore Act as the model act that if was instituted around the country would protect workers the way that workers' comp should protect workers. That's not to say that there aren't any faults in the act, but it is to say after surveying most of the state workers' compensation uh, uh, schemes that Longshore is, in my way of thinking, by far one of the best benefit schemes that you can have. Uh, and why, and why, why is that? Give us a couple of examples where it is preferable to a typical state act. Is it the duration of benefits, the amount of benefits, combination of the two? Uh, all of the above. Uh, the, the top benefit for, uh, for Longshore uh, hovers at around $1,300 a week at this point. I'm not talking about the, the top average weekly wage. I'm talking about the top compensation rate. And that's, that's for both um, uh, temporary disability and for permanent disability. And this would be uh, a function of a percentage of the average wage up to a, a maximum of 1300 Yeah, two-thirds of the average weekly wage. And the average weekly wage, of course, has different kinds of uh, formulas for calculation, but up to thir- uh, around 1300 Every Every year, it automatically is raised by the uh, CPI. Mm-hmm. Uh, by a CPI, I won't say exactly which one because I, I, at, at this point it's it's not clear. But that's a consumer price index. And that, that's uh, right. A that's standard right. Inflationary tool. So you can see okay, that. So I somebody, mean, the, somebody who's go ahead. The, the benefits the benefits are good, and they and 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 they automatically increase. Unlike a lot of states where there's where there's a big fight, uh, usually every few years, as to whether or not they're going to increase benefits. The other. One of the other uh, prominent features of the Longshore Act is choice of physician. Uh, you have free choice of physician at the beginning of the case, uh, and there's ways of changing physicians if, if necessary. Uh, and uh, one of the other uh, important features of the Act is that doctors are paid uh, on a reasonable basis rather than a schedule. Uh, and it means that if doctors know about the Act, they're much more likely to take a, a longshore case than they would to be taking a, a state case. Uh, and the other, the other great feature of the act is that they don't. Is that in most cases, the employee doesn't have to pay their lawyer. The lawyer is instead paid by the employer if benefits are gained uh, on an hourly rate. Now, some lawyers will say that that's the, the worst of possible. <laughs> Of, of all worlds because it's both a contingency and an hourly, but uh, certainly for, for the employee, the, uh, the fact that n- no part of their compensation is going to be taken is a, is a great advantage. Uh, and uh, in terms of uh, uh, giving some reason, some pause to an employer or an insurance company, the cutoff benefits or to controvert uh, any part of, of the benefits, uh, 
there's there's a there there's a penalty to be paid if they have to pay attorney's fees. And the hourly rate is has to be reasonable and approved by the uh, Department of Labor. Yeah, there have been recent cases on that uh, in the Ninth Circuit and other circuits, and 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 while the it used to be that the judges would just look to see how much was paid to in another case, that that can't be anymore. And um, generally speaking, uh, longshore attorneys are now. Uh, uh, approaching the kinds of fees that civil attorneys would be uh, getting in in uh, uh, in cases where employers have to pay at the end. Two last uh, areas of benefits or, or a discussion on that is scheduled benefits uh, called different things in different jurisdictions, but basically for uh, something like a, a disfigurement, a scar, or a loss of uh, a body part, or the loss of use, um, a percentage uh, loss of use, hearing, uh, vision, loss of use of a limb or an extremity. How are they compensated uh, under the Federal Longshore Act? Yeah, well, there's there's two there's two different schemes of compensation under the Act. One is, as you mentioned, the scheduled, and, and the other is the unscheduled. Uh, briefly uh, explained, the scheduled are usually uh, the extremities, and it goes by a schedule on a number of weeks of compensation. Uh, so to say, the hearing loss, a maximum 100%, 200 weeks, uh, a leg, uh, a knee, 288 weeks of the compensation rate. So uh, you're talking about uh, lots of money uh, in terms of uh, schedule injury. I mean, you have 100 weeks of, of uh, compensation on a, uh, on a maximum earner, that's, uh, I guess, $130,000. Now, is that in addition to weekly benefits or in lieu of weekly benefits? That's in addition to temporary disability, but in lieu of weekly benefits. But weekly benefits are paid, and you could get weekly benefits and you could get scheduled um, uh, compensation uh, under the unscheduled part of the act. And I don't want to confuse people. Unscheduled meaning that it's a loss of wage earning capacity. If you have an injury that is not scheduled, uh, by and large, the backs, the, the shoulders, the hips, the brains, psychology, uh, circulatory, major organs of the body, then you, it is calculated on a wage loss basis, which means that you are paid up to $1,300 a week, two-thirds of your average weekly wage uh, for the rest of your life. Not not your working life, but for the rest of your life. And you have to actually be absent from the workforce to qualify for that, obviously. You have to be, no, actually, you don't have to be absent from the workforce. You have to be absent from your, your previous job on the waterfront or however, the, however your job was under the Act. Of course, the employer has the right to show alternative suitable employment, which offsets it in most cases. In other words, if you were making uh, $900 a week and the employer can show that there is a job available for you for $300 a week, he can, the employer can reduce their liability by that amount and two-thirds of what's left is what you get for the rest of your life as compensation. 
All right, so not not uh, terribly different than the concept of temporary or permanent partial disability Correct. in a wage loss state. One last question before we close, and I want to thank you very much, uh, is lump sum settlements. Are they permitted under the Federal Longshore and Harbor Workers Act as they are under most state acts? Yes, they are. But, of course, uh, these days we're always paying attention to what happens with the Medicare set-aside, and that sometimes does complicate the issue. But... Uh, Longshore settlements can be uh, fairly substantial. Uh, it's not unusual to have six figures, uh, multiple six figures, uh, in your your settlements for for high wage earners. And medical medicals close, unlike some states such as Massachusetts, where medicals stay open, which obviates a need for a Medicare set aside most of the time. Is that correct? Yes, in, in Longshore, you can leave them open, but you you can also close them, and uh, for those. Uh, employees that are looking towards getting Medicare, then, of course, you have to uh, look to those provisions of the, of the, of the Medicare law for set-aside. And uh, one last uh, final point on the settlements. While some of the settlements can be, as you put it, in the six figures or multiple six figures, unlike most state acts, the attorney's fee is not a percentage. It's, is it still based on an hourly? Uh, in, in, in most cases, it will be an hourly. In some cases, it can be a percentage. Uh, reasonable fees can be determined by a judge as a percentage, and a lot of it is based on some uh, very technical aspects of whether or not you're you're getting your fees after after benefits have been paid, or whether benefits have been totally denied. There's a section in the Act called 928 that one has to look to. Okay, and just for our listeners out there, the reference for the Longshore and Harbor Workers Compensation Act is 33 U.S.C. U.S. Code sections nine. O one and follow those that follow, correct? That's okay. <laughs> Stephen, I want to thank you very That's much. Um, I think you've told us a lot about uh, longshore and harbor workers uh, compensation claims. Uh, I learned something today, which I always do on the Legal Talk Network, and I realize how complicated uh, this process can be. And I thank you for your years of service to members of the bar and educating us both through Willig, the Workers Injury Law and Advocacy Group, and the other organizations uh, that you are active with. So thank you for joining us. Um, those of you out there, we hope you'll join us for another Workers' Comp Matters show. Uh, thanks for listening today. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. Hope you go out and make it a day that matters. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.